Good morning. It's good to be back with everybody. It's uh, it's been a while. I was grateful for Van for filling in, but it's uh, it's nice to see everybody. We have a lot of visitors this morning, which is always awesome, and we're glad you're with us. We welcome you. We're very glad you're here. We just ask that you fill out a visitor's card so we can kind of record your visit. And I wanted to make an announcement. I just I think something got missed at the beginning. Uh, that This Saturday is our joint Devo with Bumpus Mills. I think we were talking about having it in Marty and Christie's cabin, but in light of what they're dealing with, we'll probably have it at one of the parks here in town. So we'll be sure to communicate the details to that as soon as they're finalized. But uh, a joint youth Devo with Bumpus Mills this Saturday in the afternoon, so we're really excited about that. VBS was two weeks ago now, which seems like uh, yesterday for me and a lifetime ago for some of the parents, I'm sure. But uh, that, was, that was really a great encouraging thing, and I won't lie, it was kind of nice to be able to take a small break from everything as soon as VBS uh, was over. But we definitely missed you guys, and it's nice to be back in Stewart County, Tennessee. Uh, Priscilla and I got to spend the last week or so with my family, and you've heard some of us probably talk about this, up at the Lake of the Ozarks. And so I have some family who are down in Texas, some family who are up in Illinois. And so for as long as I can remember, we've been getting together in this little uh, place in this little town in Missouri by the lake. And it's always great to see, you know, cousins and family members that I just don't see very often. But whenever I go back to this place that I've, I've been to many times as a child, that I went to as sort of a teenager, that I went to as a young adult, it just sort of reminds me of the journey my life has been on. You know what I mean? It's, it's one, of those, one of those things that just makes you reflect on everything, on how you got here, how things started when you were a kid, how they went as you're an adult, all those ideas of where you thought your life was going that you had when you were younger and just sort of the, the journey that it's been. During one night of VBS, I shared a little bit of a, a personal story during our adult class. And it was about one of those uh, fork-in-the-road moments in life, one of those forks in the road where something happens, something that you didn't expect, something that you certainly don't really want or like, and you're just sort of wrestling with, okay, how am I going to get through this? How am I going to handle this? How am I going to endure the next whatever, how much time it is and what you're dealing with? And how, am I, how do I make sure this just doesn't ruin everything? How do I make sure this doesn't define my life? And as I just thought about all that stuff that had sort of been hanging over my head, at least it had been so many years ago, I guess that's where I landed on our topic this morning of being delivered. Or maybe more accurately, the idea of deliverance. If you look up the definition of delivered, you get the main one. Of course, it's kind of reflected up on our graphic on the screen. To, to bring handover to the uh, a proper recipient or address. There's one probably a little bit more relevant to my life right now, which is to give birth or to assist in giving birth. But the last definition is actually what I want to talk about. To save, rescue, or set free. Sometimes, when huge, unexpected, life-changing events happen, we can feel overwhelmed. We can feel lost. We can feel like, whether we like it or not, that whatever is happening is going to shape the rest of the course of our lives. When that happens, maybe you begin looking for some kind of way out. You you, you start looking for something different. You start looking for for some way to change maybe yourself or your environment or your situation. You start thinking about, well, maybe I can try to deal with this in a way that I just haven't figured out yet. Some way of moving through life that you just haven't yet tried. When Jesus calls his disciples in Matthew 4.19, he says, Come with me and I will make you fishers of men. 
He tells them, do you want to live the way you've been living? Do you want to live like everyone else, or are you ready to do something different with your life? Do you want to be delivered from the life that you are currently living? In Christ, to be delivered means the opportunity for your story to be different. To, to maybe rewrite what has already been written. To start with a, a blank page or an empty canvas. To just refresh everything. The text that I'd like us to study as we think about being delivered comes from John 8. John chapter 8 begins with the passage about the woman who was caught in adultery. When we look at this passage, I want us to see how Jesus calls us, all, all of us, everyone, not just Christians... Not just good people, not just the righteous, not just the socially accepted, not just the in crowd, but he actually calls everyone to the opportunity to do something different with their lives. To be delivered. From John chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Pharisees enjoyed asking loaded questions. It's pretty much their main conversation with Jesus, really. So they bring this woman to him. And they already know, I mean, if you read the passage, they already know what they want to do. They've already made up their minds as to how they think it ought to be handled, what they think is right, how they believe this woman should be dealt with. And they reference this, this Mosaic law. And we understand that in Israel, even at this time, the law of Moses was the law of the land. They were essentially a theocracy. The Mosaic law was the law of the state. They lived in accordance with its statutes. And what the law said goes, at least in, in theory. The scribes and the Pharisees, these people who brought the woman, they were, we could really think of them as the executive branch. They were left with enforcing the law as they saw fit. They were given the responsibility. And so they've made their decision. They know what they want to do. The punishment for this crime is stoning. And they see that Jesus, this teacher Jesus, he's been going around proclaiming himself as the fulfillment of prophecy, as the interpreter of the law. And so what they've set up is this, this trick question where they think no matter how Jesus answers, they've got a response and they'll be able to trap him in some sort of error or mistake or some sort of even faux pas as it relates to their understanding of the law. For some context, the law they refer to here is probably Leviticus 20.10. They don't tell us exactly, but it's probably Leviticus 20.10, which says if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor... Both the adulterer and the adulteress must surely be put to death. Interestingly, in John 8, it's just the woman who has been brought before Jesus, not the man. We, we don't really know the details of the situation or who else was involved or, or what happened to them. But I would suggest from other scriptural evidence that the, the Pharisees and scribes tended to be loose interpreters and enforcers of the law. They're very selective in their punishment. On top of that, the text plainly tells us that there was no desire for justice in their hearts, but that they only wished to trick Jesus, to, to deceive him. They expected him, I think, to excuse or forgive her sin as he had done that of so many others. 
And so they could accuse him of not following the Mosaic law and thus condemn him, at least publicly. But Jesus, as he tends to do, he does something nobody really expects. And Jesus goes ahead and does something different. He says, you can stone her. You know what, you're right. The, the law does say that. And so I'll say, yes, you can stone her, but on one, on one condition. On one condition, let the one of you who is blameless, who is without sin, cast the first stone. Again, just looking at the, the way the text is written and the way the story unfolds, we, we see that the Pharisees say the woman has been caught in adultery. And they, they use the language which literally means caught red-handed. But if we look at the way it's being used in this context, it, that really doesn't make sense. So they're either lying or they're using it in a way that doesn't exactly mean literally red-handed. Because if she had been caught in the act, as the Pharisees claim, you might recall Leviticus requires the death of both parties involved in the act. And so 2 plus 2 is 4. If they had caught her in adultery, there would be two people, not just one. They were concerned with following the law, that is. And on top of that, it was almost certainly not the scribes and the Pharisees who attended mainly to temple business and stayed sort of in their lane as far as that goes that, that would have seen this happen. They almost certainly heard this from other sources. They heard this accusation from other witnesses, if the accusation is true at all, and not just completely manufactured. And so you notice when they bring the woman before Jesus, these supposed accusers or these witnesses are nowhere to be found. So Jesus says, I know you think that it's right to stone her. I know you believe that this is how this problem should be solved. But I want you to think about trying something different. I want you to think beyond what you've always done. Think beyond just what you've been told. And, and certainly think beyond your very deceitful motives of being here in the first place, which Jesus certainly knew. Jesus' own response also draws from the law. And again, this is kind of a guess. But just based on what he's saying, it's probably from Deuteronomy 17.7. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a man shall be put to death. But he shall not be executed on the testimony of a lone witness. Also notice this, the hands of the witness shall be the first in putting him to death. And after that, the hands of all the people. So when we view this situation in light of the law that the Pharisees claim to be following, we see that not only should there be supposed witnesses, at least two or three present to properly accuse this woman, and not just the hearsay or gossip that the Pharisees are following, but the law actually says that these witnesses, the eyewitnesses, the people who saw the act, should be the first in carrying out the sentence. In the time of the Israelites, in the Old Testament, this was certainly understood, and we see it many times carried out literally. But there was an underlying purpose that should have existed even in Jesus' time, which was if you were going to be accusing someone of a serious crime, you ought to be so certain so confident, so strong in your accusation and in your testimony that you are willing to carry out the punishment yourself. That you are comfortable bearing the weight of the consequences of your testimony. Because, of course, the law also says, Thou shalt not bear false testimony. And so the Pharisees and scribes are operating on this gossip. They're operating on hearsay. And they're, they're more than willing to destroy this woman's reputation and possibly even take her life if it means they can just even get a foothold in attacking Jesus. They weren't concerned for her life. 
They weren't concerned from violating some, some moral standard that they're trying to upholding. All they really want is power, is advancing their own agenda. It's important to note their, their motives when we think about what this passage might mean to our lives, when we think about applying the passage. Jesus carries out the same principle that is in the law of giving weight and power to testimony. Jesus just adds a condition. And he does this because he knows the Pharisees are liars. They've lied to him before. They've tried to deceive him before. So he doesn't just say, let the first witness cast the stone. He says, let the one who is without sin be the first to cast a stone. We see this through the eyes of the Pharisees. If you want somebody dead bad enough, it's very easy to make up an eyewitness testimony, especially back then. You give somebody a few nickels, you tell them to come forward, say they saw something they didn't see. It'd be very easy for the Pharisees to manufacture eyewitness testimony against Jesus. It's a much bolder claim to be without sin. But that is who Jesus says the power of judgment ought to be reserved for. To be without sin is a claim so outrageous that Jesus knows not even the Pharisees and scribes, as prideful as they are, would ever make, at least publicly. And so the consequence of his verdict, as the text says, is one by one they left until only Jesus and the woman remained. And so Jesus says to her, where are they? Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus himself said he did not come to judge the world, but to save it. He did not come to pronounce judgment, but to give deliverance. To give his people, his flock, his sheep, the chance, the opportunity to do something different with their lives. So what does all this mean for us? As we hit sort of the, the middle, the crux of our lesson, I want us to think about this passage, and, and not just Jesus' example of, of rescuing the woman, whether she was an adulteress or not, who, but the woman who clearly needed rescuing, who needed to be delivered from the situation, but also think about his teaching or his instruction to the Pharisees. Let him who is without sin be the cat first to cast a stone. There's this phrase found over and over in the Old Testament. And in fact, uh, it was very relevant to our Bible class this morning when we studied Ruth. And it's this phrase that says, You must always love the foreigners since you yourselves were foreigners in the land of Egypt. That phrase is used over and over. The old law, the prophets, the, the historical books, the Psalms. That it's sometimes rendered foreigner or sojourner, traveler, alien. But it says, remember where you came from. But before you go to treat somebody else a certain way, or before you go to judge somebody else, and before you go to handle certain situations a certain way, think about where you came from. And again, this same principle Jesus applies to the Pharisees. He says, before you pick up a stone to cast against this woman for her sin, I want you to think about your sin. I want you to think about what the law says the punishment for your sin is. I want you to think about how your sin was handled in your past. And consider that maybe just once in your life, you needed to be delivered. 
to be rescued, to be saved. Jesus' lesson reminds us that we are delivered from our past. From our past life of disobedience, from our past life of of separation from God, from our past life of maybe fleshly living and wrongdoing and, and passions. It means that what is in the past stays in the past. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. That we were once in those things we walked in. That we once followed the course of the world. What he calls the the prince and power of the air, which is just a euphemism for Satan. The one they call the accuser, the adversary. Paul says we once followed that spirit that is at work in those who are disobedient. He says we once lived in the passions of the flesh. We used to live by the desires of the body and the mind and the rest of mankind. He says we used to be that way. But in Ephesians 2 verse 4 he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And has raised us up with him and seated us with him. He says we once needed to be delivered from our past. You know, when I think about just uh, my experience in the church, not just here, but the, the church in general, one of the traits that really defined the church for a long time, and in many communities, unfortunately, still does define the church, was that an unflinching attitude of self-righteousness. Of this put on holier than thou, that the, that the members of the church were better than everyone else, and that unless you were as good and righteous and proper and upstanding as I, you couldn't ever possibly stand to be a part of the spiritual community I am a part of. But I thank God every day that according to the Bible, that is not at all how the church works. I see attitudes of self-righteousness and judgment in the Bible. I see the closed-mindedness and I see the holier-than-thou attitude in the Bible, not in Jesus, but in the Pharisees, in his enemies and the people he rebukes and his accusers. I don't believe our sign out front declares this to be the place of worship of the Dover Church and the scribes and Pharisees. For that I am grateful. We serve Christ. And I should thank God every day that the God that I serve and that the Son He sent has delivered me from my past. God is holy and we are called to be holy as he is holy. But I am grateful that he is not only the God of the proud, the perfect, and the self-righteous. He is the God of the sinners. He is the God of outcasts. He is the God of dropouts, losers, failures, and fools. To be a Christian means realizing he has delivered us from our past. Being delivered through Christ means being delivered through God's wrath, from God's wrath. I said God is holy and God is holy and he is perfect, which means he is full of both grace and judgment. Again, this is something that came up just in our study this morning in our Bible class. But he is full of both love and wrath. He has forgiveness and he pronounces judgment. That same passage I mentioned earlier from Ephesians 2 says that when we lived according to the flesh... When we were fulfilling the desires of our mind and of our body, we were, quote, by nature, children of wrath. Christians, children of God, know that we will be hated 
in this life. But those who are unrepentant, those who are disobedient, they will be the subject of wrath in the next. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides in him. We don't think of it. We probably don't teach it as often as we used to. You don't hear quite as many fire and brimstone sermons as you did maybe 20 years ago. And for that I'm also a little bit grateful. The love and mercy of God is certainly a much more palatable message. But the wrath of God is stored up. Colossians 3.6 says, The wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Against those who suppress the truth. In Romans 1, Paul opens this, this long treatise on the, on the gospel by, by saying that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God which comes by faith. The gospel shows and demonstrates God's righteousness. But he said God's wrath will also be revealed. That God's wrath will also be revealed against all the wickedness that is in the world. When Jesus describes what is called the great white throne judgment in Matthew 25, he concludes his story, his description of this scene, with the king saying, Truly I tell you, Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And he says, they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Eternal life is reserved for those who are obedient to Christ, to the life that he has called us to, who are faithful to his commands. But when we commit ourselves to Christ, we are delivered from God's wrath that certainly awaits the world at the world's end. To be delivered from God's wrath means we are delivered from spiritual death. Another passage from Revelation, from Revelation 21, which I would say has the most vivid description of this, uh, what it means to have that spiritual death. From Revelation 21, verse 7, The one who overcomes will inherit all things. I will be his God and he will be my son. But to the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and sexually immoral and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the second death. Christians need not fear death. That's why we've heard so many times that we, we do not grieve as the world grieves because we have been delivered from the second death, from the true spiritual death. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Instead, fear the one, the one who destroys both soul and body in hellfire. Christians need not be afraid of what awaits us on the other side. We don't need to have a fear of death because we do not fear the life that comes after death. Because we've been delivered from that. Over and over in his letters to the churches, Paul, Paul repeatedly refers to Christians who have passed on with this idiom or this expression of as sleeping. And I think he does so to really emphasize the temporary nature of what dying means to a Christian. 
He assures the church that even those two who have passed on will rise when Christ returns. But that it is the spiritual death that all should fear. Christians have been delivered from the spiritual death that awaits the disobedient, that awaits the unrepentant. Deliverance through Christ is salvation. It is the spiritual victory. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks of the resurrection of the dead, of that resurrection in Christ, of the the events on that great day. And in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 23, he says, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. For this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. To be a Christian means we are delivered. To have deliverance in Christ is to have salvation. Salvation which comes through accordance with God's word, which commands us to repent, which just means to turn for our way of living, to make that good confession that Jesus praises in Matthew 16, to be baptized in accordance with Acts 2.36, but the numerous examples of salvation and experiences in the entire book of Acts and the entire bulk of New Testament Scripture. But it does not stop there because we must live faithfully. If you are with us this morning, and maybe you've just missed that last step, maybe you need to turn from your been living and continue to live faithfully, or maybe, just maybe, you've never made the chance or the opportunity or the choice to be delivered. If this invitation is for you this morning, won't you?